Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Morning, everyone. How are you? It's good to see you today. So nice out. And yet you came to church. You love God and he loves you. Um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We're, uh, we're in a series right now that, uh, that will be, that, that where we're talking about these rhythms of grace. And so as, as we jump into Ash Wednesday, and you as a community, we're really hoping we'll sign up, get those passages, read through them, and then when we wrap up here in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking uh, about this series, The Turn, and following Jesus to the cross, as Luke said. But right now, we're in a, a series about the rhythms of grace, and what it means like for a year, for us as a, a church family, uh, and, and for maybe some of you who are interested in Christianity or just testing the water a little bit, what would it look like if everybody here was a participant and nobody was a spectator? Whether regardless of if you participate in home communities and small groups and you serve or not, you would still embrace sort of these practices. You would practice these rhythms of grace. And the point of these rhythms and these practices is that they don't create spirituality in us. They don't make us more acceptable to God, but they turn us towards what God has already done. They help us to, to align our lives, our families, our work, our, the whole of ourselves at the deepest level and bring all of that into face-to-face communion with Jesus. And so... We're sort of letting go of this model of discipleship that says, come, learn enough, figure everything out, and then go out and obey him. Because what's happened in the Western world is that we realize we'll never learn enough and we'll never grow enough. So it's sort of safe. Like we never really have to obey because we don't know what anything means. We don't have to love our neighbor because we don't understand who our neighbor is. It's very confusing, neighbors even though it's the person living next to you. Um, so this come, grow, go model has allowed us to just stay in the question of, well, I don't know how, I don't know how, and thinking we have to master something before we enter into it, and replacing that kind of discipleship with a more biblical picture of what it means to follow Jesus, which is the center of this practice is that we're gonna hear and obey. We're gonna listen to the word of God and the spirit of God, and we're just gonna obey. Which then puts us into this place where we're in the middle of what God's up to. And so last week we looked at this practice of generosity and what it means to be people who have been so graced by God that we could live with open hands with our stuff. And today we're gonna look at hospitality. So if you have your Bible and you're in Luke chapter 15, I want to... um, kind of bounce out of the prodigal son as, as a framing passage for us to think about these rhythms. So 
Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Here's what it says. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Well, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of his servants and he asked him, what's going on? And he says, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. When we think about hospitality, um, it's kind of a weird word in our culture. It's been, it's really been segregated to like uh, hospitals, to hotel industry, to those sorts of things. But a biblical picture of hospitality is really rooted and grounded and anchored in who God is. And Luke 15 gives us this window into the hospitable God. The son, the son takes off, right? And he has lots of money, and in his imagination, the world that exists out there is, is amazing. It's got all the bells and whistles that he could ever want in terms of comfort and pleasure and pain and all that. And as he goes out, he realizes that as long as there is this economic exchange going on, he's doing pretty good and he's having the time of his life. But as soon as that shifts and there is need, there's famine, whatever, 
he realizes that this is an inhospitable place. That he's in need. No one is going to take care of him. He is, the pigs are basically more well off than him. And if you've ever seen pigs, you realize that's, you're in a bad situation, if that's true of you. Um, and in this moment, he, there is this memory that he has about the kind of person that his father is. That though he's out there in this totally desperate situation, he remembers what his father's like. That, that even if he came back and was just put to work, just was a servant of his father, that his servants are taken care of in just an abundant way. They have food left over, they're cared for beyond what they actually need. And so he comes home. He decides, I'll go back, I'll exchange this inhospitable condition for hopefully a more hospitable condition, even though I'll just be like working for my dad. It's still, that is so much better than being busted and broken out here in the world. That there is something about that home that, that is in his memory that is now contrasted with the dire situation that he's in now, which is essentially, you're on your own, it's up to you. If you can't scrape it together, then too bad. Where whatever your liability, disability, disadvantage, or economic situation is, that's gonna pretty much declare where you fall in this inhospitable culture, world, whatever you wanna call it. And so that pain brings together this reality that says, I think I could go get a job with dad. But he really wasn't expecting hospitality, right? He was expecting a better, a more fair, a more kind and generous economic exchange. And yet what he gets is this welcome. A welcome that is undeserved, a welcome that is unearned, a welcome that, that is like way beyond anything that he should have received. That somehow in the midst of squandering everything that the father had given him, in taking his name and dragging it through the mud, in coming home with absolute emptiness, he receives this powerful welcome this embrace, a kiss, a robe, a party. That's, that's the hospitality of God. That you and I who have wandered way off, who have squandered everything that, that, that we were given in rebellion against this Father, when we finally turn and start heading home, we embraced, are embraced by that welcome. Well, it's not enough for that just to sit on a theological shelf somewhere. It, 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 was, it wasn't enough in the New Testament for the church to go, isn't that great that God's like that? 
But, but the power of sort of the New Testament church was that they turned around and said, because God's like that, you be like that too. That you welcome, that you embrace, that, that you make a place at your table in your home, set aside a bed, a room, to care for that person who comes to you without, who comes to you in a place of need, who come as stranger or as alien or as somebody who is hurting. Jesus, what's fascinating about Jesus is that he both needs hospitality and then commands it. That the hospitable God who calls you and I, who welcomes us with that kind of embrace, also requests to be welcomed by you. His entire ministry, he's, he's walking around and he'll say, hey Zacchaeus, I need to eat dinner with you. Um, I don't have a place to stay. He's at Mary and Martha's. He's at uh, the Pharisee's house. He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He, he needs hospitality displayed to him, which is wild to think that the God of the universe would put himself in that position. Now, why would he do that? I mean, why would God put himself in a place where he required hospitality? Is it, he has everything he needs. He can, he, we, we've seen him make bread for 5,000 people out of a sack lunch, so it's not like he's going, man, I hope you guys pull through for me. But there is something about sitting, sitting in the context of a home around a table where the space between us is closed, where the things that differentiate us go away. And there's this person-to-person, life-on-life connection. And Jesus preferred that context to teach and to minister and to be with. You think about the road to Emmaus. After he resurrects, there's a story about these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and there, Jesus comes up next to him and is talking to him, and they're like, yeah, man, you, have you heard what's going on? He's like, no, tell me. And they start telling everything about Jesus, who just resurrected, but they can't recognize him. And he's like, really? Well, that's fascinating. Uh, as Jesus it's sort of a cruel joke, in my opinion, but as he does this, then he begins to open up the Old Testament, explaining to them why the Messiah needed to be crucified and resurrection. But the point at which they recognize him is when he's at the table and he breaks bread, and they see him. The upper room with the disciples, Mary and Martha, like all through the New Testament, you get this lens, the Gospels, you get this lens of Jesus sitting in homes with people talking about the kingdom of God. And what's ironic is that the loss of hospitality in our culture comes through really this sense of material gain. But in the, in the first 400 years of the church, hospitality was the primary way that the Gospel went forward. People were bringing in sick and strangers and 
people who, didn't, who, who had need into their homes. They were loving and serving and caring for them. And the gospel was being exchanged in deed, but as well as in conversation and in word. And they understood it as, as mystery, and they understood that there was reward there. They, they took the teachings of Christ seriously, and the leadership for the first 400 years was sort of adamant that this is what we do. We are the church collective and the church scattered, but even when we're scattered, our homes are these little sanctuaries of hospitality. So when Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, sort of declares that Christianity is, is a state religion, then they start building hospitals, and they build hostels, and they build inns. And in, in this time of prosperity, they actually lose this thing that has the heart of what Jesus did at its core. So the sick will go to hospitals, which we're glad there's hospitals, right? Um, but nobody is going, man, I wish I could just go to the hospital. That'd be awesome, just to be cared for and hooked up to machines and stuff. Like, nobody wants to go there for hospitality. Nobody's like, the food is amazing at this hospital. Right? You gotta stop there. Um, and yet you still see Providence, Adventist, St. Vincent, right? These, this is sort of what happened. They're, they're perhaps corporately owned or whatever at this point, but, but at some point they had that kind of DNA in them. You don't really see Darwin Hospital or Nietzsche Hospital. Um, and I don't know that I want to go to that hospital, actually. <laughs> like, we'll see how you do. Survival of the fittest. Sometimes our... Theories get really practical in situations like that, don't they? Um, and, and so what happened is that, that we kind of farmed out hospitality, that you could stay in a hotel. There's a whole industry. If you, if you type in what is the science of hospitality, they'll talk about hotel management. Uh, they won't talk about how, how to bring someone into your house how to share what is yours even if there's not a lot of it. But the early church understood this. And yet by the 17th century, even the reformers were going, yeah, we, we've really lost the heartbeat of what, so much of what Jesus talked about and did and so much of what the New Testament church did. This is what Calvin says. He says, the office of hospitality has nearly ceased to be properly observed among people the ancient hospitality celebrated in the histories of the Old Testament is unknown to us, and inns now supply the place of accommodations for strangers. He warned that the increasing dependence on inns rather than on personal hospitality was an expression of human depravity. Wow. <laughs> Leave it up to Calvin, right? He's always going to get there. But what, but, but what he's saying is this sense of separation this sense of autonomy, that when I go into a town, I don't need to stay with you, I can rent a hotel, I can pay for it myself, I can be without you, and yet if you've ever traveled by yourself, sitting in a hotel room by yourself, that's a, that's a fun experience, right? It's so lonely, you're like, why am I here? But it seems so right, like if somebody said, hey, I know you don't know me, but do you wanna come stay at my house? I'd be like, no, I don't. 
I don't at all, ever. Thank you. Don't ask me again, okay? Bye. Um, because, and Calvin's going, that actually, that idea, that attitude is coming from your own depravity that says, I will be better if I, am, if I, if I keep the space between us, if I keep you there and me here, if you stay in your place and I'll be in my place and I don't want to need you, I don't want to have to owe you, I don't want to have to receive from you. Another Puritan theologian said that the younger days of the world, hospitality was offered to needy strangers. But with us, it is applied unto a bountiful, and it may be profuse entertainment of friends, relations, and neighbors, and acquaintances, and the like. I mean, this is in the 1700s. But the truth is, this is how we understand hospitality today. That hospitality means this is a person who throws great parties for friends. Now, the, the funny thing is that, that when Jesus walked the earth, people did that even back then, believe it or not. And so you hear him teaching on things like, hey, when you throw a banquet, don't just invite like all the people that will give you honor and respect, but invite the blind and the hurting and the needy and the stranger. And we go, well, we don't throw banquets. Well, the truth is, like, if you took your party and compared it to the party in most places of the world, you do throw a banquet. Like, if you're buying wine and beer and great food and all that stuff, that's, that's a banquet in most places. And yet we would go, no, hospitality is about just bringing people who are like us and who do like us and who don't need us into this room and saying, like, let's have a good time. And Jesus says, I don't really need to die on the cross for that to happen. But the power of Christianity was that there were these people who would open up their lives and their homes to embrace the other, to make room for the other despite persecution, despite poverty, despite whatever it was that they lived with, and this is where these practices sort of overlap, but they lived with the understanding of abundance. That, that the welcome, the mystery, the reward, that God was in the middle of this exchange. And there was something beautiful and powerful and mysterious and almost sacramental about it. When it came to the Emperor Julian, he was so ticked that the Christians were taking better care of the Hellenistic Jews than the Hellenistic Jews were. That he was like, teach, we have to teach our people to take care of the poor among us because the Christians are doing a better job of it than we are. And he's like, and he, th- he called them atheists. He thought we were all atheists. And, and the point was that there was a palpable understanding of what that type of hospitality was doing for people and for the world. And there was also a supernatural sort of empowerment to do the work so that people would go like, why can't we pull that off even when like, there are people, quote unquote. Hospitality was so direly needed in that day But what's interesting is that despite the fact that we have hotels and 
hostels and inns and hospitals and all that stuff in a world that's quote unquote so connected virtually in every other way, there is this massive continued hunger and sickness of loneliness and identity and meaning and belonging that is just as palpable today in our culture as it was in theirs. And hospitality, when it is practiced as this rhythm of grace, has social and spiritual transformational power that affects not just the person who receives it, but also the one who welcomes people into their space. Jesus set it up that way. Because when you close the space between you with a living room, with a, 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 at a kitchen table, a dining table, with a, an overnight experience, whatever that might be, there is a social status where it is just person to person. And the power of it is that we would close the space between us by just obeying what Jesus has asked us to do. And so when you think about your table, when we first started the church, Diane Lindstrom, who was sort of a church mother to us, she was our spiritual mother, um, and she passed away a few years into it of Lou Gehrig's disease. But I remember distinctly her throwing like these dinners for eight or something like that, she would just have sort of everybody in, from the church into her house. And she would go around and she would pray over like each chair before people got there. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a, hey, can we just get the food out and make sure everything looks perfect? That, that somebody was going to sit here. Some person that is loved by God is going to show up and be sitting in this chair. And that she's asking that God, would that experience be something there? where there's this exchange of life on life so that you have your way at this table. Uh, We learned so much from from her because of that openness, that willingness to welcome and to receive. But more than just the practice, more than just like hosting a meal, it was the undergirding faith that believed that there's something powerful that takes place here. And so I want to talk about these three aspects as we wrap up. I want to talk about the welcome, the mystery, and the reward of hospitality. And, and the truth is that um, when we talk about starting somewhere in our cultural moment, for us, for many of you going, hey, let's just go grab strangers off the street and bring them into our house, that freaks you out pretty bad. Um, I think it freaks most of us out. There is something, however, in our imagination that says, but it didn't freak people out back then, right? Back then, people were like, oh, strangers that we've never met. Sure, bring them into our house. That, that's not dangerous or weird or anything. Like somehow they were just not in tune like we are. And it's always had that same risk to it. It's always been like, well, yeah, they might not have a gun, but they, you're still asleep. Like they can hit you with whatever, right? Um, so I don't want us to get ourselves off the hook, I guess. But I, but I also don't want us to walk away just going, oh my gosh, I can't pull this off. It, most of us don't have anyone at our table. The truth is, we don't have our neighbors across the street at our table. We don't have 
friends at our table. We don't have anybody at our table. So starting somewhere where you close that space, whether by responding to the invitation or giving the invitation, all of us were saying, all of us get in the game at some point, at some level, even if you're just putting your feet in the water and saying, we're just gonna invite someone to our table. And break through all the, well, it's not a big enough table, it's not nice enough, it's not, I don't know how to do this. We're practicing, okay? And, and, And just having someone at the table is enough, right? Make it simple, don't set the bar so high. But the welcome. What we do when we bring people into our home, and I think what the New Testament church, they believed in the welcome, the mystery, and the reward, And the welcome was understanding that we were extending the welcome of the Father. That that we we of all people know what it's like to be a guest because we're all guests at this table. We've all been welcomed by the Father and are a guest, the adopted sons and daughters who come home to God and are welcome We're all people for whom God says the Father and the Son and the Spirit will come and make their home in us. So this idea of the welcome is kind of at the core when the Father came out after you and he pulls up his robe and he runs down the street when he throws the kiss and the embrace on you. When you and I come weekly to this table, we come as guests, as a table that was set for us. In the simplicity of bread and wine, we receive a divine welcome. So the early church understood that when we welcome the stranger, when we welcome uh, the least of these, when we welcome anyone to our table, we're extending a welcome that we've already received from God. That we're inviting people to be guests at a table of grace that we've, we've been at because we were invited. But it doesn't just stop there. They also understood that this exchange, whether they were having a meal, whether they were have, having people who were traveling over, um, that there was a mystery. And the mystery was that the people that are actually at the table, the person who's actually at the table is Jesus. They, they believe that. Jesus says this all through the Gospels, but here in Luke chapter 9, he says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he, he's just taught about how to throw a banquet and sent the disciples out and said, hey, you're going to be in need. But they're, they're kind of saying, who's going to be the best uh, in the kingdom? Who's going to be the greatest at the banquet? But he says, knowing their thoughts, he takes this little child and has him stand beside him. And then he says, whoever welcomes the little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who will be the greatest. And this, this theological identification where Jesus identifies himself with the least of these, with the stranger and the foreigner and the traveler, the sick and the lame, Um, it was that identification that people clung to. They realized, they actually believed 
that, that we're not having just Bob over, we're having Jesus over. And that, that, that means that there's something that's going to happen in this exchange that is about the kingdom and that is spiritual and that is powerful. That, that, that not only are we going to welcome and serve and love this person as if they were Jesus, but that this person has a lot to give me as well. Like if Jesus was coming to your house, first of all, how intimidating would, you, would that be, right? What, like everybody's cleaning, it's completely spotless, which is kind of ironic because Jesus knows everything about you, right? And you're acting like it's always like this, isn't it? Amazing. <laughs> but you would anticipate that when I sit down with Jesus at my table, I'm going to receive something from him. In the, in the early church in the New Testament, they, they believed that, that to have this person at my table was to have Jesus at my table. And so there was this mystery that was also connected to that. It was a, extending a divine welcome and then being prepared, being open to receive the mystery of having Jesus at our table. And there was also reward. Now, here's what it says in Matthew chapter 10. It says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. That's the welcome. So when you welcome and receive this person, you welcome and receive Jesus and the Father. And then he says this, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to uh, one of these little ones, is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. And so the early church understood that not only was this a, a, a mystery of having Jesus here in the face of the other, but there was this reward to it. And the reward is palpable because we all feel like the risk is palpable. Like this is so countercultural to open up ourselves and give of ourselves and to make space for the other because as people, we hold this tight grip on what we have, whether that's our time, our stuff, our space, our fears, our convenience, our comfort. And so the risk is that we have to open our hands with all of that. And when we do, we make space in our home, in our hearts, to welcome Jesus into our house in the face of another. But he says, but there is reward there. We had a, I had a friend who called me this last week, and he said, you know, we've, we've had so many people over our house the last, I don't know, uh, several weeks, and you know, we're, we're sort of road weary from it all. And then we had another uh, traveler come through that, that is from Africa and called and said, can I stay with you? And that this verse particularly popped out to him. That like somehow part of this mystery is that by hosting this, this kingdom worker from Africa in my home, 
I actually get to participate in his reward. That I'm, I'm practicing and participating in his work in Africa just by embracing him. Jesus says, even if it's just this cup of water, you're not gonna lose your reward. So yes, there is risk in terms of opening our hands and letting go of our time and our comfort and our space and all that. But there is a reward that's much greater. To turn towards someone and extend to them the welcome that the Father has extended to you. And to realize that, that the person at this table is just is Jesus Christ in the face of another. And that Jesus is welcomed by me in this place and has promised to reward me in this place. <clears throat> it is a sacred trust that we're invited into. So whether it's just your neighbor or a friend or just starting somewhere, create space. Be people who practice hospitality. Because when the space between us is closed, Jesus says, I show up in that space. And I transform both the one who is welcomed and the one who offers the welcome. And so I invite you to this table which is interesting, that when Jesus thought, how can I symbolically bring you face to face with the, the core reality of my death on the cross for you, he set a table of bread and wine, body and blood, and he said, come and be my guest and find your way into the Father's house. Let's pray. Jesus, meet us here. May you be welcome in our hearts. And may we welcome others. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.